thank you, Brother Yang, for playing to us. We sometimes in worship forget the musicians. Let's not do that here. This doesn't work. This works. I have two. I'll use this one. Thank you also for the nice welcome back to Andrews. It brings a lot of memories, not of the 22 years I spent being president. You quickly forget those years. But the three years I spent much earlier being a student at a time when this chapel was barely two years old. And all the seminary professors were complaining bitterly about being exiled by the General Conference to the snow-covered fields of Michigan when they used to live in a nation's capital. But I understand we are all getting used to being here. It is actually a better place, I think, for the seminary to be here than there. So I was one of the first students in the Michigan location of the seminary. So uh, thank you. Does this work? Yeah, that's okay. I told the people I would use either. So my meditation for worship this morning begins like this. A short time after I graduated from this seminary, while still a very young minister, teacher, I was invited to preach in a small church on the West Coast. As I entered the pastor's study after Sabbath school, ready with my scripture and hymns and a sermon, the pastor pulled me aside and whispered in my ear, we have a special feature today. The teenage son of one of our members is sick. He is possessed by a demon. And we like you as our guest pastor to cast him out before you preach your sermon. I am not pulling your leg. This happened. That was a first for me. I wasn't prepared. I never learned in seminary how to cast out demons. <coughs> Perhaps you learn that nowadays. That church, I discovered, had regular deliverance services for demon-possessed persons. It was done very much the same way. We anoint a sick person with oil and then implore God to heal. But I didn't know that. Pastor, I explained, I do not cast out evil spirits. I have never done it. I do not know how. I do not have the gift, I'm afraid. Well, he said, not to worry. I'll cast him out, and you pray to keep him out afterwards. <laughs> All right, I replied. I can pray. You cast him out, and I pray afterwards. And that's exactly what we did. Now, that experience, which I'll never forget, made me think about the disciples of Jesus on one of their first apostolic assignments after Jesus had left them. For more than three years they had been following him, they had heard his parables, listened to his sermons, seen his miracles, <coughs> which including casting out demons, and now he was gone. They were on their own. 
like seminarians the day after graduation. Now what? Some of the disciples were so bewildered that they literally fled and took off and ran back home to their families by Lake Galilee to start up their old fishing business again, you remember. That was something they knew, they thought. And so they dusted off the old boats and set out on the water with their nets in the evening, only to catch nothing all night. They could not even fish any longer. They had lost the touch. For three years they had seen Jesus and been with him. They had learned many new things, but other things like fishing they could no longer do. I suppose the crucifixion of their teacher had been hard on them. It was not the outcome they had expected. And so they abandoned the resurrected Lord in Jerusalem to go back fishing. Fortunately, Jesus did not abandon them. He followed them all the way from Jerusalem back to Galilee to check up on them and bring them to their senses. And so he helped them out once again, as you recall from the story in John's Gospel, chapter 21. Actually, to tell the truth, there was really no need for them to fish. Since Jesus had looked after that already, he had caught a few fish for breakfast, and he put his catch on the fire with some bread. You cannot begin a new ministry, he said, on an empty stomach. So he said, children, using the word in Greek, pedia, which means really kids. You use it in Greece still today. Kids, he said, come and eat. And surely for the disciples, it was not exactly a glorious beginning to their new apostolic ministry. They felt like I felt in California that first sermon, like me on the West Coast. What? You do not cast out demons? He quizzed. Well, Jesus cast out demons. What's the matter? Did they not teach you that in seminary? He really asked that. What was worse? By that time, I had just completed a doctorate in theology, and even with that, I could not perform a simple task that Jesus had sent his disciples out to do. So they had breakfast on the beach up there, Jesus and his disciples. The gospel explains that when these disciples realized who it was who had fixed breakfast for them, that it was in fact the Lord who had come to help them out, they felt ashamed and utterly embarrassed, I imagine. Now it was two of those disciples who had breakfast with Jesus, who had run away to Galilee, planning to take up their fishing ministry again, Peter and John, those two, returned to Jerusalem and determined once again to take up the work of the gospel that Jesus had prepared them to do. And their first assignment, which they ran across, was not an easy one either. And that's when, according to Acts 3, which we just read, they went to the temple at 3 in the afternoon, the time for worship, for prayer, to fortify their souls before plunging in to the work that Jesus had asked them to do before he left them. 
There were before that beautiful gate at the temple court where the beggar was lying asking for a coin. You know how it works if you've ever been to Chicago. The beggar watches the passers-by come down the sidewalk and try to make eye contact. That's critical. No eye contact, no coin. You know that. Most passers-by simply moved on without looking at the beggar. <coughs> it was easier to pass by pretending not to see. You know that too, perhaps. Maybe you have done it. In fact, people who do not like beggars find it easier not to look at them and just keep walking. He knew that. He tried to make eye contact. And Peter and John decided to contact him back. Jesus had taught his disciples to make contact with people at all costs. No matter how attractive they were, look at them. In fact, Jesus made eye contact with those people who looked at him and even those who didn't look but just touched him. It was important. Jesus seemed always to notice these unfortunate people around him. He stopped, made contact, and gave them whatever they needed. Perhaps a kind word, or a healing miracle, or some instructions that the disciples knew. And so Peter stopped and looked back at the beggar who had lost interest already, and then he spoke those awful words that no beggar likes to hear, ever. Peter said, sorry, my friend, I'm clear out of money. Don't have anything. Nothing to give you. Silver and gold I do not have. All gone. Empty pockets. Finally, I made contact with someone the poor beggar thought to himself. And it turned out I made contact with another fellow who doesn't have any money. Not so good. And immediately he shifted to the next passerby trying to make contact with him. That's what beggars do. If you don't believe it, go to Chicago and try it out. It still works that way. Pass by a beggar and show your empty hands and immediately the beggar looks for the next person. No, said Peter, do not look away. Look at us. Yes, it's true. I don't have any money. But we have something else we like to give you. And what would that be, the beggar thought? If you don't believe that, try it in Chicago. So what do you have to give me? A falafel sandwich? A burger? No, thank you. No food, just the money, please. That's how it works now and then. I suppose most of these two disciples were like most seminarians nowadays. After three years of study with Jesus or with the professors, doesn't matter. You are clear out of money. <laughs> so at first, these disciples decided to go back fishing to make some. And that didn't work, but Jesus thankfully took pity on them, followed them all the way to Galilee, and evidently persuaded them to give up their fishing business for a second time and to follow him back to Jerusalem. They had not worked for three years, I understand that. They were still unemployed. All the money was gone, you know, tuition, room and board, books, maybe family if you are married, no money to give. But what we do have, said Peter, that we will give you. 
And what would that be? How about taking a walk? Really? A walk? That's it? And yet that is exactly what he did for the very first time in his life, this poor man. He just took a walk. And then he understood what had happened to him. I think he must have smiled at his good fortune, begging for a coin and getting the ability to walk. What a trade. I think he was willing to give up all the coins he had ever received or ever dreamed of receiving while begging just in return for being able to walk. So, I once studied at the seminary. I lived in Garland, G. They call it the bachelor's quarters. Three levels, five small rooms, so small that you had to go outside each time you wanted to change your mind. And that happens often in seminary. <laughs> After each class, you want to change your mind. So that's where I lived. I was a poor international student living in Garland G with a few other international seminarians and feeling sorry for myself, walking to classes and walking to work because I didn't have a car. Most of my classmates had cars and they drove to classes. So I felt sorry for myself for having to work, especially during snowstorms. Oh Lord, why am I so poor? Why can I not have a car? Why do I need to walk in that snow? Try to explain that prayer to a person in a wheelchair. Such a person would gladly give up all the cars in the seminary parking lot just to walk to class, even in a snowstorm. No wonder this beggar on acts not only walked, but ran and jumped and praised God for being able to walk. Peter, Paul, temple priest, Levites, keep your coins. Beggars, you can have mine. I do not need money. I can walk. Now the disciples have long gone, and it is your turn, so let's talk about you. You will complete your studies in the seminary. You will be ready for your first ministry, a parish, a church, youth minister, evangelist, chaplain, whatever. When you start, everyone will call on you, asking for your attention. Pastor, I need help. I lost my job. It's not going so well at home. We are forced to leave our house. I am troubled what the conference or union or general conference is doing. I'm afraid I'll lose out when my name comes up. Upstairs. Pastor, please help. A coin, please. Give me something to help me through. When that happens after seminary, what are you going to say? because I know you won't have money to give. It's all gone. It's expensive here. I worked every summer in Chicago in big factories by the airport to get a few coins for the next year. So I understand how that is. But now you'll be a pastor, and people will ask you for a coin. Let me give you some practical advice that helped me in those early years. There are two things you have that you can give to anyone in real need. Like Peter and John, money you may not have. But what you do have, 
is far more valuable than all the money in the world. And that you will gladly give. Now what is that? What is it you have in such abundance that you can give to everyone? It's quite simple actually. Two things. First, you have access to the grace of God. Share that. The best gift you can give to anyone, saint or sinner, personal access to a gracious God. That, I believe, is what you studied in every class in seminary. That God is good beyond measure. That Jesus is gracious. As a seminarian, you are like a merchant standing in front of an enormous warehouse filled with God's goodness and Christ's graciousness. Open the doors and let it flow out. Jesus, the one stood in front of an ugly crowd of men with stones in their hands, ready to cast them at a poor woman. Suddenly they left. Jesus asked this unfortunate woman, so where are they? I guess they're gone. Don't know. Well, I don't accuse you either. God is good. Go home in peace to your family. She could not believe her good fortune like the beggar, he could walk and she could go home with her head up. Every book in the Gospels is like a warehouse filled with stories like that about grace. Cut it loose. Let it flow. Let the world, your town, your church, every home be filled to overflowing with God's goodness. Grace upon grace. And don't forget the old stories about the patriarchs, and don't forget the matriarchs are also filled with God's goodness on every page, in every book, bringing them out of Egypt, through the wilderness, across the sea, through rivers, into the land with milk and honey. Oh yes, there were mishaps now and again, but goodness and grace always trumped everything else become specialists in distributing God's grace when you become pastors. The people have behaved foolishly, said Moses, up there on the mountains. But do not punish them, Lord. Take my life instead if you have to, but not theirs. Yes, of course, replied God. But remember, I'm gracious for a thousand generations. You will never run out of grace, Moses. Not for them, not for you. Yes, I know, mumbled Moses. So people will ask for many things when you become a pastor. For money, position, for justice, for what they deserve, for equality, for help with this and that and the other, much more than you can provide. Share what you can, but above all, share the riches of God's goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. Share it in and out of season. Our church has been debating a good many things recently, at the local level and at the highest level. You cannot ignore that, of course. Develop your views, draw your own conclusions, consult with colleagues and administrators by all means. But at the end of the day, or at the end of the committee meeting, 
remember that God is good and Jesus is gracious. Of that you can be sure. Yes, you do not have solutions to all the problems in the church and community. Like the apostles, silver and gold you have not, I understand. But what we have, we gladly give. In the name of Jesus, receive the goodness of God today. That was the first thing you have to give away. And you have plenty. The second thing you can give to people when they ask for help is access to human friendship. Share that. Like the man by the Golden Gate in Jerusalem, your parishioners will reach out to you and ask for coins. Meet our need. Please take our side. Help us resolve our differences. Bring church members and their leaders to their senses. Give us our right. Be fair and just, as the prophet Micah said long ago. You will want to help as best you can, of course. You will give everyone what she or he deserves. That's not always possible, but it is a Christian duty. But above all, you can share human kindness and friendship. That you can do. Like Peter standing before the beggar at the gate. Give me your hand. Lifted him up on his feet. That is what every church member in trouble needs. A hand. God's goodness and human friendship. Friendship is not a weakness. Do not get it mixed up. That's the way of unbelievers. We see it all around us. That friendship is a weakness. It is not. It is in God's kingdom. Friendship becomes a strength, a strength that serves others and benefits them. I have sinned against God and you, the prodigal son said to his father and older brother. Could I have a coin, a meal, a set of clothes for old time's sake? He begged. I messed up, I know. But could you give me a chance? Take me in again. It's all right, said the father. We're just glad to have you back. Back home. The table is set. The meat is prepared. Now go and clean up and get dressed. And let's eat. Really? Really. That's what the story is saying. We are just so glad to have a friend. That's it. That's what you can do. That's what we're going to do with the young girl who got into trouble in our church. Or with the husband who went astray and left his wife and children. You're the pastor. Perhaps you cannot restore the marriage, you try. Or ease the pain from her troubled heart, you try. But you can be a friend and be kind when listening to this story this sordid story of which you will hear many, and responding on behalf of the church. You can be a friend. You can be kind. Jesus said to the woman who touched him to get his attention, to make contact. He said to her, well, you've had this issue of illness for 18 years. This is simply intolerably long. I know it is Sabbath. 
I also keep it carefully, but it's high time your pain has stopped. After 18 years, you shouldn't suffer a single day, not a single minute longer, so get well now. We realize you have been lame all your life, Peter and John said to the man at the gate. That's what Jesus would have thought too if he had been here, and he was a great walker. So here, let me give you a hand. Up you stand. And he upped, and he stood, and he jumped, and he ran, and he shouted. The only thing he didn't think about was coins. A coin might have appeased the man momentarily, and the disciples might have felt like great philanthropists if they had given a coin. But they realized, fortunately, that if Jesus had been there, he would have done much better by the poor man. He would have become his friend, given him a hand, helped him up to walk. So, well, yes, I see you would like to have a coin, but really, you need to walk. Let me be your friend and lift you up instead. So true ministry is sharing divine grace mixed with human kindness. Now I believe the two are intertwined. No grace flows without kindness. Grace is not a theological concept. It flows through kindness. And kindness is always gracious. That's what Jesus taught these people to do. Can you do it? I believe you can. So God bless you. Be gracious and kind. Amen. I guess I have to pray for you too. Be glad to do that. Father in heaven, you have been so good to us. Teach us to be good to each other. Gracious and friendly. That is the way of the gospel. That is the way of truth. That's the way of Jesus. Teach it to us today in his name. Amen.